Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, it's uh, it, I, I want to discuss a big topic here. I'm, 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 it's 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 uh, it's it's a it's a little bit complicated actually, um, because it's it's sort of touching on um, one of the sort of central conundrums um, uh, that 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 uh, that exists, which is which is. It touches on all aspects of our life, really, in terms of the nature of free choice, the nature of um, Hashem's control of the universe, simultaneously how these things align, um, the fact that it says that um, uh, meaning that everything is in the hands of heaven except one's yira, one's awareness of God. That, that's in our control. Um, so we have to take responsibility. But then you have the amazing Torah from the, the Me'a Shalok, the Ishbitzer Rebbe, who says, even one's fear of heaven is also in the hands of Hashem, which is a very radical statement, um, because that's, um, that's saying, well, then is everything just determinism? Do we have free will at all? So our, our, our Masora, it says in Pirkei Avos, is very clear, we absolutely have free will. So then, how could the Ishpitzer even begin to say such a thing that even our fear of heaven, so to speak, is, is in Hashem's hands, right? But if you think about it, if Hashem is all-powerful and controls the entire universe, right, then isn't everything in Hashem's hands? In other words, it, wouldn't that be the case? And to say otherwise, doesn't that somehow lessen Hashem? And yet, this is considered such a radical thought that even the fear of heaven is in Hashem's hands, as opposed to our hands, that, that he was considered completely outside the mainstream on this thought. Like his other Torahs, people, you know, just swim endlessly in. But that idea was just considered too radical. But, but yet, the radicalness of it actually makes sense. If Hashem is in fact all-powerful, and if he fills the entire world, and if he creates us every single moment to moment, then wouldn't literally everything be in his hands? So how do we begin to reconcile all of these things? And, um, and so I want to just bring you a series of teachings uh, that sort of like, sort of shine a light on different aspects of it, of our, of our free choice, of our role in the world, of Hashem's role in the world, and how all of these things fit together. And um, hopefully we'll have a, just a better understanding of what the the nature of the, of the world is, and what um, we, you know, where where we begin and where we end, and uh, and where that's just an illusion, right? So, so let me tell you what inspired um, me wanting to say over this talk. I came across um, over the years, but recently, two teachings. That, that had a big question mark attached to them. I loved both of these teachings, and yet when I sort of thought about it further, I saw a pattern here that I wanted to sort of like delve into further. So what, 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 what is the first teaching? The first teaching is that um, there's a custom, a minug, uh, uh, among Jews, which is that on Rosh Hashanah, which is called Yom Hadin, that's really the day where the whole sort of blueprint for the year is laid out. That's the, that's, that's a very important, very important day in the year. It's the anniversary of the creation of human beings. So there's a custom not to eat nuts. So where does, you know, what's the connection? Like, you know, so. Yeah. And she's a service dog, so she's kosher. Besides being a superstar, where should I sit? Is this good? So, so the word, um, the word for nuts in in Hebrew um, is egos. So, how how would you spell that? That's um, that's olive, um, and it's got a zion in there. It's got a gimel in there. It's got a vav in there, right? So, 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 so it adds up to um, seventeen. Okay, and chet which means to do something wrong, right? That's, that's, you know, like in English, although I don't like this word, sin, if you will, right? The word sin 
is the same numerical equivalent as nuts, the, the food nuts, right? So, so the custom is that on Yom Adin, on the Day of Judgment, on Rosh Hashanah, you want to stay very far away from doing anything wrong, so the custom is you don't eat nuts, right? Now the Kutzkarebi has a brilliant, hilarious, insightful commentary on that, right? He says, Chet, right, which means to do something wrong, right, to sin. He says, Chet is also the gamache of Chet. Oh. <laughs> meaning, meaning, you know, if you want to stay away from sin, just don't sin. You know, you, you, you know it's, it's like, really it's like, uh, in terms of like, in terms of like nuts, like, you know what I mean? Like, let's just be, let's just be real. Just want to make sure that you all followed that teaching. Let me just say it again. The gamachi of the word to do something wrong, chet, which means sin, you know, in translated, is the same numerical equivalent as the word nuts. So people don't eat nuts on Rosh Hashanah because they want to stay far away from sin. The Kutzke Rebbe says, chet is also the gamachi of chet, meaning sin is the gamachi of sin. If you want to stay away from sin, just don't sin. Forget about not eating nuts. You know what I mean? Okay, hopefully it was clear the second time. So... So, um, so, so there's a problem. There's a there, there's a problem with this um, Torah, which is that chet is actually spelled um, uh, ches, tet, and with an aleph. So that actually adds up to um, eighteen, and and nuts adds up to seventeen. So, seemingly, we're spelling the word chet here, and we've got a whole custom, which is very widespread among the Jewish people, based on this, this numerical association between sin and nuts, right? We have, and yet, and yet, the numbers don't actually match very well. Okay, so now you can say, and this would be a, a perfectly fine answer to say, that um, we have different systems of gematria. In other words, Chet is actually 18, and the other is 17, that, that we have a system of gematria called gematria imakolel, where you can actually add the number one to a word, and you can round it up one. Okay? One represents Hashem, maybe, too. You add Hashem. Okay, so, so there, as you're saying, there, 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 there are deep ideas uh, attached to why we, would, why we would add one. And um, it's not fudging it, but I, I don't want to go into all the sort of like philosophical reasons why you might add one and why that would make sense as opposed to just sort of like jerry-rigging the numbers. You know what I mean? That the, the, There's a lot of depth behind it. But nonetheless, we see that there isn't this exact match. And, and so that was the first sort of like sort of question mark that I had. Then I came across another teaching very recently from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver in the Or Torah, which also dealt with the word chet. And this word chet, again, translated as sin, right, to do something wrong, he, he sort of delves into the, um, the etymology of it in a very profound, amazing way. Okay, remember, chet is spelled with a ches and with a Tet. And he says, where, where, do, where does that ches come from? And where does that tet come from? Now, you ready for this? Something quite amazing. He says, there are two major spiritual adversaries that we have in the world. The nachash, which is the snake, right? The snake from the Garden of Eden, Garden Eden and the satan, Right in English, we would say Satan, right? Which is, which is also a um, an angelic, uh, heavenly opposing force. And remember, uh, as it says in Baba Basra in the Gomorrah, that the Yetzahara, the Malachamavis, right? The the sort of like the evil inclination, the angel of death, and the Satan are all one energy. That's all one idea. So, so he says, if you look at the middle letter of both of these words, nachash, snake, that's the letter ches. Satan, the middle letter is tet. And so the two, the, the two central pillars of these energies spell out the word chet, which is 
which means to do a sin, to do something wrong, right? So you're sort of like, you're sort of like becoming vulnerable to like these, these energies. Okay, so, so that's his spiritual um, derivation of where this word comes from. So again, I had this, like it, it hit me like, wow, there's a pattern here now. Where, where's the Aleph? Because classically speaking, you spell the word chet with an Aleph. And now we have two very profound teachings that seem to be leaving off the letter Aleph in the word chet. Now, that became more compelling to me since the letter Aleph, as we know, stands for Hashem. And, and we've gone over it many, many times, but let's just review it again. Aleph, the numerical um, value of the letter Aleph is one. Hashem is one. And we know that many of the letters are composed of actually other letters put together. And Aleph is probably the best example of that because Aleph is the two Yuds and, uh, and a Vav. Right? So, so um, we add those two things up and we've got 26 which we know is Keneged, that's the numerical value of, of Hashem's holiest name, right? The Yud Kei Vav Kei. So we see all of that embodied in the letter Aleph. So now we've got this interesting dynamic where the word Ched, when the rabbis are explaining it, and when we've got, we're deriving customs from it, we seem to be spelling it without an Aleph, without seemingly the presence of Hashem, and yet the word itself, classically speaking, like if you look in a Yom Kippur prayer book, you'll see the word spelled with the letter Aleph. So what is Hashem's role in our sinning? Or if you want to ask it even more radically and more profoundly, does Hashem sin? Right? And, and by the way, this is something you can, you can chase me out of the room for asking a question like that, but it's not my question, it's the Gomorrah's question. Right? So the sages ask this, and I'm going to tell you what the sages say in Gomorrah Hulan in a moment. Right? We'll go into the answer to this. But you'll see that, 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 that reality is very, very deep, and, and Hashem is standing by us always. See, the Tamar Devara, one of the classic Kabbalistic works um, by um, Rabbi Moshe Cordevera says, says that you have to understand that even when a person is doing something wrong, who is keeping them alive while they're doing something wrong? Right? As, as a thief is reaching into the pocket of a person to take his wallet, who allows that person to live at that moment? Right? This is the Tamar Devora asks this question. A very amazing thing to think that, that even while we're do something, doing something wrong, Hashem is keeping us alive. So, so you should know that the Gemara says in Sota that a person only does something wrong if a spirit of insanity comes on them. And, and uh, the Or HaChayim says a very interesting explanation of this passage in, in Breshis, where it says that, um, that, that after Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, it says, God opened their eyes and they saw that they were naked. Right? So he says that what happens is that, that when a person goes to do something wrong, they are, so to speak, blinded. And now this is, an or, or, like to put it in another way, where the Gomorrah puts it in Sota, that a spirit of insanity comes over a person, which is sort of this emotional form of blindness, right, if you will. And then he says something very, very powerful, because we know that Adam and Chava were like creatures of light before they ate from the, the Eitzadas. And it says that Hashem, when he sort of like told them that they had to leave, um, the Garden of Eden, it says that he put um, garments on them. But the way the deeper uh, commentaries explain it, 
was that we were essentially creatures of light, but then after we ate, we sort of became compacted and put in this, these fleshy bodies. That those were the garments that Hashem put on us when we left the Garden of Eden. Essentially, our, 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 the skin that we have on us now. And so when it says that Hashem opened their eyes and they saw that they were naked, they saw that they were stripped of the light that had been surrounding them before they went against the will of Hashem. So that's how the Or HaChayim explains that passage, a very amazing and yet, you know, frightening, you know, insight into what, what was actually going on there. So now, I want to just sort of like enlarge the lens. So let's just review for a moment here. It seems that we have two prominent teachings about the word chet, to do something wrong, right? One is that uh, it's the same numerical equivalent of nuts. And yet we see, in order to get that correlation, you have to leave the letter aleph of chet. Another is this great teaching from Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver, that the word chet actually comes from the central pillars of the word nachash, snake, and satan, right? Opposing angel, right? The middle letters. And yet that is also leaving off the letter aleph. And we know aleph stands for Hashem. So what is the role of Hashem in all of this? Okay, now, now we know there's something that... Uh, a teaching that I've shared with you many times, one of my favorite teachings, but I, I just want to say it again, just for us to sort of like expand our minds and, and ground us in, uh, in, in where we're going to be going further as, as, as we uh, share some more teachings on this. Which is, I once imagined a conversation between two fish, and one fish says to the other, do you believe in water? <laughs> and the other fish says, um, you know, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. Right? So what's the joke? The joke is there's nothing but water. Water is the only thing that's going on. And, and, and yet they're philosophizing about the presence of water. Right? Because it's so all-encompassing they can't see it. So that's you and me. You and me are engulfed in godliness. Right? And yet, people, even intelligent people, like say, well, do you think there's a God? Well, I don't know. What about you? I don't know. You know, my grandfather was very religious, you know. He thought so. <laughs> Meanwhile, that's the only thing that's going on. It's the only reality in the world is that, is that, is God. That's the only reality in the world. And I was having lunch with a friend, and I, I said to him, where did you park your car? And he said, across the street. And I said, do you realize you can't get to your car without swimming through godliness? Right? So that's us, right? This is us. So again, if God absolutely fills all of creation, right? And we're just, we're, we're, we're engulfed in godliness, then where does free choice begin and where does free choice end? Right? So we know that we have free choice. And, and, and that's an absolute, right? So, so it would make sense, it would make sense that the word chet then would be spelled without the letter aleph. Meaning to say, if chet means sin, right? And aleph stands for Hashem, and we do have free choice, then you have to make a division, you have to make a degree of separation and say, you know something, let's put the Aleph aside for a moment because you have free choice and you have to take responsibility for your own actions. And that's why we're leaving the letter Aleph off, the spelling of Chet, because this isn't God's problem if you're doing something wrong. This is your problem, right? So that sounds great. But then why ever spell the word hate with the letter Aleph to begin with? <laughs> okay, so we see like in this, in this, in this uh, analogy that we made with the, with the fish, that God is inescapably there. Right? So how can you not spell, if you want to have a whole picture of the universe, 
How can you not spell? How can you not account for God in our lives at all times? So, so the, the, the presence of the letter Aleph must be there. Because the greatest, the greatest um, drive or the greatest, uh, the, the, the greatest obstacle to doing right is you feel all alone. And once a person has this illusion of independence and separation from God, that, that's, that's when a person does something wrong. When a person says, it's my life, I'm going to call the shots. It's me. You know, I'm ultimately answerable to me. And that's what it is. That's the beginning of sin. That's when you cut the Aleph off Chet and you spell Chet off in, you spell Chet in this way. That's nuts. <laughs> and that's nuts, right. Right, that's insane. That's what the Gomorrah is saying. That's the spirit of insanity. You know, it's a play on words in English, but it works. It, it totally works. So, okay, so we get that part, I think. But now let's go to the, the astonishing part, okay? The astonishing part, and this is in Gomorrah Chulun, um, is like this. We have something called a, um, a Korban Chatas. A Korban Chatas is something that we bring if we've done something like wrong. Like if a person breaks Shabbos, for instance, in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, if they did it by accident, they didn't mean to, but they broke Shabbos, so you would bring a Korban Chatas. Korban Chatas is sort of like the most heavy-duty Korban, really. You know? And uh, unfortunately, we don't have a Beis HaMikdash today, so we can't, you know, I know I, I certainly would love to be able to bring one, you know? But, um, you know, we don't, we don't have that opportunity right now. Um, so we have to do tshuva in, in, in other ways. Um, but anyway, but anyway, so there's one instance, the, the Torah is filled with mentions, mentions that, you, that for this you have a korban chatas, and for that you have a korban chatas, but there's only one instance in the entire Torah, and the rabbis zero in on this because they want to know, hey, what's going on here? Where it says you bring a korban chatas Le Hashem. That phrase, which is translated as on behalf of Hashem, meaning Hashem wants to bring a sin offering for himself. And that's in conjunction with Rosh Chodesh. And if you want to see it, we actually say that phrase in our davening, in the Musaf of Rosh Chodesh. You'll see that phrase is in there. So the rabbis want to know, wait a second, what is this way out concept that Hashem wants to bring a korban chatas? Why, why would Hashem want to bring a korban? Hashem is perfect. Hashem, by definition, Hashem is perfect. By definition, Hashem is perfect. How can Hashem desire to bring some sort of offering for some sort of wrongdoing? What wrongdoing could possibly be associated with Hashem? Right? We can blame Hashem in our own lives for this. Hashem, why are you doing this to me? And why are you doing that to me? Right? But we have just the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest insight into like, the world. We, we have no idea what Hashem is accomplishing. And especially considering that there are dimensions that we can't even see. Like trillions of them. And we've got past lives that we've got no knowledge about that, that need rectification. And we've got our whole future and we have no idea what's happening now and for the sake of what's going to happen. So, so we have no real right to, to say something. You know, I was just thinking, you know, like when, when, when uh, breakthroughs in astronomy started happening, people got um, really excited about using this bit of in imagery that, you know, all of Earth is like just basically the size of a grain of sand. Like people got really into like somehow belittling the importance of human beings, right? And, and the way they would do it is saying that Earth is like a grain of sand, right? Meaning to say, what's the, what's the hidden message in that? You know what, I can do anything I want to do. I am relieved of any real responsibility for my actions because the earth is the size of a grain of sand in the universe and come on, come on. Meanwhile, what's our, what's our tradition? 
that the entire universe was created for human beings. That the human being is the most central element in all of creation. Okay, but that aside, I was just thinking further. You know, one of my favorite thoughts, uh, a friend said to me one time, can an ant outthink a man? Right? No. So how can we outthink God? Right? So I was thinking, you know, like God makes our brains and then we use our brains to tell God what he can and can't do. Right? Which is ridiculous. But I was thinking that, here's the point, if they want to liken the earth into a grain of sand, what is the size of one person's brain (laughs) within that construct? If the whole earth is one grain of sand, what is the size of one person's brain according to that paradigm who then wants to go and tell God what he can and can't do or what he's capable of and what he's not capable of? Like it's like the size of an atom, right? The size of an atom. Less. And somehow we're empowering ourselves, you know, ridiculously, absurdly. So, so let's get back to this um, Gomorrah and Chulun. So the question is, why would Hashem ask that we should bring a korban chatas, a sin offering on his behalf, and why on the occasion of Rosh Chodesh, of all times? You know? So, so the rabbis go on to answer, because, you know, we have an amazing Pasuk, where that tells from the beginning of the verse to the end of the verse, it tells an entire story. In the beginning of the verse, in, in the beginning of Breshis in, in Genesis, it says that God created two great luminaries, right? Meaning the, the sun and the moon. And by the end of the exact same verse, it says the bigger one and the smaller one. So seemingly at the beginning of the verse, they were of equal size. By the end of the verse, something happened where one is big and one is small. The sun being big and the moon being small. What happened in the middle of that verse? So the Medrash fills in the, the story that the moon said, is it appropriate that two heads should share the same crown? Right? Meaning to say, like, here's one sky, that's the crown, and you know you have the sun is sharing it and the moon is sharing it. You know, a king doesn't share his crown. That's his crown. So Hashem says to the moon, hmm, you know, you're right. Make yourself small. (laughs) Meaning to say, okay, you know what? That's the answer. And I heard Rabbi Beryl Wine say something very beautiful, which is that that it's a a, a Musser lesson, or if you will, a, um, a, a, a lesson in humility. Every time you look up to the moon, to, to remember that teaching, oh, you know, that how the moon made itself small, you know? So, Total. interesting. Yeah. Shoot. Okay. So, um, so, the moon makes itself small. And uh, now, now let's start to, let's start to put all these things together. So Hashem wants us to bring a korban chatas, a sin offering, for making the moon small. That, that's, that's what they explain. But what does that mean exactly? I mean, why, why for that? So we have to unpack it and, and understand that the, when the rabbis um, use these types of languages, they're, they're encoding great mysteries and secrets in terms of these types of presentations. Now listen to this. So the explanation I heard from two very different rabbis, two very great rabbis, um, is the following. You see, the way God created the world was he took his, he took an, the sort of the outer, his outer garment of light, if you will, And he compacted that light and compacted it and compacted it and compacted it until that light became a physical entity, which is the physical universe that we dwell in. See, now let's return back to that imagery of of the fish 
of us being fish in the water. So what, 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 is, it, what is our fishbowl, so to speak? What is it made out of? If we're the fish, what's the fishbowl? Right? This whole dimension that we inhabit is the compacted light of Hashem. Right? This is what we call tzimtzum. Right? And again, it's just worth pointing out that what's interesting about this is that people who don't have a real knowledge of Torah or the real, what, what authentic spirituality is, think that, you know, spirituality and materiality, right, are two different paradigms or two different things. But here you see it's one spectrum. It's just materiality is just compacted light. It's one spectrum. There is no, or, or to put it another way, there is no such thing as a secular moment. <laughs> there is no such thing as a moment where somehow you're not standing before Hashem. You see, this is why, this is the answer, or the key to understanding why there's so much Jewish law. See, a lot of people think like, okay, you know something, like when a lot of people, when they start out, they go to someone's house and it's Friday night, it's beautiful, they have some chicken soup, they love it, there's such a warm atmosphere, and they want to get more involved, and all of a sudden they find out, 613 mitzvahs? Are you serious? What are you trying? Are you killing me? Like, what are you doing to me? You know, it's like, you, you know, you stroke their head, and you kiss them on the cheek, and then you whack them with a two-by-four. It's like, what are you doing? You know, so the... The answer is, the answer is that how could there not be so much halakha? In other words, if I am standing before Hashem at every single moment, because this is where I exist, I exist engulfed within Hashem, how could there not be a holy way to do everything? This is why I'm so into like the Torah approach to putting on your socks and shoes, right? In case you don't know it, there's a Torah way to put on your socks and shoes. So you can approach it in one way and say, you mean the Torah even has an opinion on that? (laughs) Right? And get all stressed out and want to run for the door? Or you can say, how can there not be a holy way to put on your socks and shoes? Like, thank God there's a holy way to put on your socks and shoes. I'm so happy. Because even when I'm putting on my socks and shoes, I'm standing before God. It has to be. There, in fact, there has to be a way, if God is everywhere, there has to be a way. Not, how dare you tell me how to do this, right? A person has to understand where they are, what the nature of reality is. And, and by the way, just in case you don't know, you put on your right sock, and then your left sock, then your right shoe, then your left shoe, then it switches. You tie your left shoe, you tie your right shoe. Okay, so I'll say it again, right? Right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe. Then you tie your left shoe, then you tie your right shoe. Right? And, and there are deep explanations of this, but the first explanation I ever heard of this, I loved it to pieces. And, you know, you might not care for it, but I'm telling you, it's one of the greatest things I ever heard. Which was, why wouldn't you just put your, say, your right sock and then your right shoe on, right? And you know the explanation I heard? because then it would make your left foot feel bad. (laughs) I personally love that answer. I love that. I love that the Torah is so sensitive, that for real that the Torah is so sensitive, that it doesn't want your left foot to feel bad. Well, your right foot is all dressed. Right? I mean, it's great, actually. There's, there's greatness there, because if you're sensitive, if you have that level of sensitivity, then how do you feel when you're walking down the sidewalk and someone doesn't have a coat on? And you do. Right? I mean, you, you ingrain a level of sensitivity and holiness into yourself that then affects the way you see the entire world. So, so now... Now let's get back to this idea of, remember, we're still on the same subject. Why would it be that Hashem would want us to bring on His behalf a korban chatas, a sin offering, for making the moon small? So we're saying on a deeper level, what this means is, you see, when we go back to this model of creation and we see Hashem compacts His light, what happens is, 
is that by the time the, the, his light gets compacted into a physical realm like this, all of a sudden, Hashem becomes very concealed. And in fact, one of the great Torahs is that the word olam, which means world in Hebrew, the root of that is elam, which means hidden. Aleph, ayin lamed mem, means hidden, because God is concealed in this world. Right? But remember, God is equally present in this realm as he is in the highest realms. He's no less here, because remember, we're existing amidst his compacted light. He's no less here, but he's concealed. And now, here's the, the, the end to the teaching. Because Hashem made himself concealed in order to give us free choice, right? Right? Because why did he do it at all? Because remember, angels don't sin. Because angels have this quantumly higher revelation of godliness than we do. So angels understand where they're sta- that they're standing before Hashem at all moments. So how could they do anything wrong? But simultaneously, what's happened is they don't have free will. Because they don't have the ability. They can't even begin to do anything wrong. Whereas us in this realm, where Hashem becomes concealed, we can do something that even angels can't do, which is why human beings are even greater than angels. Because human beings can be tempted to do something wrong and even want to do something wrong and then go, no, wait, but God is here. Even though we can't see it with our own eyes at that moment, we can muster the strength to do the right thing. And the energy that that gives off making the proper decision produces wild amounts of angels, wild amounts of light, wild amounts of fixing. And it brings the world closer to redemption every single time that happens. That's the agency through which the world becomes repaired and perfected. Is that energy that we throw off, that we emit when we do the right thing. Because it's not clear like it is for angels. So now, here's the most amazing thing. Here's the most amazing thing. Hashem says, now remember, remember what our question is. We said, on the one hand, the word chet seems to be based on these teaching about the nuts, right? And, and, and about how it comes from, it's spelled from the middle letter of Satan and the middle letter of Nachash, right? Where's the Aleph? Where's Hashem? Aleph is Hashem. Where is Hashem during the sin? Why are we leaving off the Aleph? And yet, when you spell it, you spell it with the Aleph, right? So now we can come to the answer. Hashem says something amazing. He says, you know something? You, if you, meaning you and me, all of us, human beings, right? If you really understood that you were standing before me at all times, if you really could see me in a way that I really am there in reality, you would never do the wrong thing. Just like angels never do the wrong thing you also would never do the wrong thing. Now, I concealed myself because I wanted you to have the ability to have free choice so that I could give you tremendous blessing and reward for doing the right thing. But I also created an environment where you could do something wrong. And so for that, I have to take a little bit responsibility. And for that, Hashem says, bring a sin offering for me. I mean, again, you guys should be picking up like chairs and like machetes and chasing me out of the room for saying this, except it's in the Talmud. What I just told you is in the Talmud. This is how the rabbis explain this piece of Agadita. I mean, it's so far out. It's so far out. And how loving, how loving a God do we have that God says, you know something? Also me. If, if I didn't do this, you wouldn't have done that. You know, put, put part of it on me. 
So, so now we can return to the question that we had. How is it that chet is spelled and it's, it's darshaned, it's explained, just using the letter ches and tet, but leaving off the aleph? And yet, at the same time, if you want to properly spell it, it's spelled with the letter aleph. So now we see, now we see that while it's true that the entire world is filled with godliness, nonetheless, we have to take responsibility for our own actions because we have free choice. So that's why it's spelled without the Aleph. And yet, if you really want to be honest about where we live, it's spelled with the Aleph, and Hashem even counts Himself as partially responsible because He concealed His light, that we only do something wrong because we can't see Him, and God says, okay, I'm part of that chay, bring a korban for me too. So, so now let me approach it from a different direction, okay? Which is that, that you can put it like this, that everything is on a, in Hashem's hands, but simultaneously, everything is in our hands. So this is one of the great conundrums. How can it be that everything can be in Hashem's hands and yet, at the same time, everything is in our hands. How can it be that you can spell hate with an olive? And yet, the way we explain it and treat it, it's spelled without an olive. <laughs> and so, there's a... I had a thought one time, and I'll share with you, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. One of my favorite ideas... Um, and, you know, sometimes this question is phrased a different way, and this is called, you know, one of these great um, paradoxes that they say, you know, like, even Shlomo Melech, you know, couldn't really explain, which is, if how do we have free choice if God knows everything that we're going to do? Right? So sometimes what I'm talking about is phrased that way, too. So I want to give an explanation that's meaningful to me, Again, you know, you, you have to think about it. So we have something called parallel lines. And parallel lines, it's, you know, I'm sure everyone knows what it is. It's, it's you draw one line and then you draw another line on top of it, right? And the whole definition of parallel lines is that they never intersect. Like if you continue to draw both of those lines, the bottom line and the line above it, and you can draw it, you know, for, forever. And they'll never intersect because, by definition, parallel lines don't intersect. By definition. Okay? Then I came across something that just astounded me. Now, that's called um, Euclidean geometry, right? Which is the name, that's a fancy name, but that's the fancy name for basic geometry, right? That's when we take geometry in high school, we're taking Euclidean geometry. But then you have something more sophisticated called non Euclidean geometry which is geometry that's actually set against a curved space. All right? So it factors in, it's also called three-dimensional geometry, right? Or Boolean geometry. These are all different names for this. Now, when you have parallel lines against a curved space, something amazing happens. The lines actually intersect. <laughs> so, with that... Helps me to understand is there are certain things that will never intersect in terms of our ability to understand them in this dimension. But Hashem exists dimensions beyond us. And in those realms, what we perceive as the ultimate paradox is not a paradox at all, because it's a completely different dimension. So this is partially an antidote to the inclination that human beings have to make Hashem follow right the the the, the, the hardwiring and the and the logic of our brains, whereas He created the hardwiring of our brains and exists dimensions beyond it. So what we understand to be ultimate limitations don't 
begin to exist in the heavenly realms. And you see this illustrated in mathematics very clearly. So, maybe let's just wrap it up now. And, and understand that we're never alone. We're never alone. And that when we do something wrong, it's only because we've allowed the spirit of insanity or depression or whatever it is, whatever, however you want to describe it, of thinking that we're alone. And that Hashem is with us even in our wrongdoing. But at the same time, we, have to, we bear complete responsibility 1,000% complete responsibility for all of our actions. We can't take this teaching and abuse it and misinterpret it and say, oh, Hashem, you made me do it. We, we, we can't do that. That, that would be a, a, a desecration of this teaching. But we have to understand simultaneously that God's there with us and loving us at that moment, even at the moment where we think we're alone and he's telling us you're not alone. But if you thought you were alone, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you went through that hardship. I, went, I, I, went, I once heard this teaching. I wish I could tell you which Rebbe said it. You know, after Tisha B'Av, which is the day, the black day of the, of the calendar where all of our worst tragedies happened, the Shabbos afterwards, already the energy turns and we, we it's Shabbos Nachamu and we say, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, Hashem through the prophet says, you know, be consoled, be consoled, my people. And there's this double expression of consolation. And I, so the question is, okay, so be consoled. I get it, I get it with the first word. What's the, what's the second word of consolation? So I wish I knew the Rebbe who said this, but he said, you know, the first word of consolation is, you know, you, you should know that every, all the hardships you went through were really for your own good. That's the first level of, of consolation. But the second nachamu, the second level of consola- consolation, is Hashem says, but still I'm so sorry you had to go through it. So, so this is the closeness of Hashem, right? He's, he's loving us beginning, middle, and end. And, uh, and, and, and the best antidote, the best, the best defense against falling into error is ever thinking that we're alone. And this is why, you know, the words of Rebbe Nachman, right? We just end with the words of Rebbe Nachman are just, just the home run. These are the home run words, which he says, you have to talk to Hashem all the time and you have to talk to him like you're, he's your best friend. Because when you've got that ongoing relationship with him, and even if it's tough, you're talking to him, then you'll never get yourself into that place where you feel like you're alone and where you can fall. Because you'll know that he's always there. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Hey, by the way, let me just say, welcome back. I didn't have a chance to properly greet you. You're, you're here now? You're just visiting? What? I'm, I'm going to make Aliyah. You're making Aliyah. Okay. Okay, good. Okay. So just to end with a, a blessing, um, today is Pesach Sheni, and there's actually a custom to eat matzah today. And Pesach Sheni, everybody knows, is the holiday of second chances. Because um, we we wanted to bring the uh, there there were people who wanted to bring the the uh, uh, korban Pesach the the special offering for Passover, but they were they had contacted uh, been in contact with a dead body. Some people say that those were the bones of Yosef. Other people say that that was the the, the bodies of Nadav and Avihu. But whatever, however you learn it out, they had come into contact with the dead. And they weren't able to bring this offering. And they, they said to Moshe, we, we want to bring the offering also. And Moshe said, you know, it's a really good point. Let me ask God. And God said, you know something? One month later, after they've gotten out of this place of spiritual impurity and everything like that, 
they can go and we'll make a special holiday just for them so that they can bring the, the offering. And so really, really every single day has this aspect of Pesach Sheni to it because the world is constantly being reinvented. And I, I saw, and, and second chances and third chances and 90 billionth chances are, are given us every moment. And I, you know, I, uh, I just, um, just Hashem should bless us that, that, that we shouldn't give up on ourselves because the fact that we're alive means that God hasn't given up on us by definition. Um, can you imagine like sitting outside of a restaurant and because you don't have any money and you're sitting on the sidewalk and you're so hungry and, and, and you starve to death. And meanwhile, there was a $100 bill in your pocket the entire time. Oh, no. Right? So that's what happens when a person gives up on themselves. Because if you're alive, that's the greatest proof that God hasn't given up on you. And if God hasn't given up on you, that means that you can still get it right. So if you give up on yourself, that means that you gave up on yourself too early. Right? So, so the $100, so you say, I checked my pocket 100 times. But... You, did you go down deep enough? <laughs> you didn't go down deep enough because otherwise you would have seen that there was something else there, that there was hope there, you know? And, um, and uh, I know I heard in the name of the Chos of Lublin, you know, one of the greatest of the masters, also known as the Seer of Lublin, that every day he would say in the morning, he would say, today I'm going to be at Tzadik. Right? Every day he would say, today I'm going to be a tzaddik. Right? He was one of the greatest tzaddikim that ever lived. But what, how did he do it? Like Every day he thought, okay, now I've got another chance. Today I'm really going to do it. Okay. <laughs>